to Matthew chapter 16. And this will be the kind of base of our talk today as we continue in our series on the doctrine of the church. Let's pick up together in verse 13 and hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will, be, um, will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing in our series on the doctrine of the church this morning, and we're going to take a little bit of time to examine really only one verse here that we just read, verse 18. And he said, I say to you also that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not over." Power it. That's where we're going to work on examine that verse a little bit in terms of thinking about what are the marks of a true church. Now, I threw a lot at you last week. I know that very well. Part of that's because I had not preached in a few weeks, and so I just had to get it all out, right? Um, but also trying to set us up for really how we're going to diagnose some of those things and parse some of the things I talked about last week more in detail over the next few, next few weeks. But one of the things we want to do here at Grace Church is be a church committed to the Word of God, and preach the Word of God fully as much as we're able to. And, and that comes in the form of exposition, which again, we'll talk a little bit more here in a few minutes about what that means. But exposition isn't just book by book study. It is at times taking what are the big, wonderful, grand, beautiful themes of Scripture and examining them and thinking about what they mean to us as God's people. And one of the big themes that's in Scripture is the church. God's redeemed people. The people whom God has set his affections on. Excuse me, hold on. <clears throat> the, the people God has set his affections on. That he has pursued since eternity past. And said, you'll be mine. And what does it mean to be his people? And what we know now today as the church. So it's important for us to, to, to take some time each year, I think. At least on an annual basis. Last year we talked about our doctrine of salvation. This year we're going to talk about our doctrine of the church. Um, for a few weeks, and then we'll get back into our study in John here in just a couple of, uh, well, basically at the end of August, okay? So we want to teach sound doctrine. We want to we put you guys in a place, and our church in a place, where we, we think about this. And, and for me, it's kind of driven from a place of the church seems in every moment, but particularly in our way, to have its call and mission challenged. Um, everyone thinks they know what the church is supposed to do, but when you start talking about what the church is supposed to do, it seems like we're so far off of what the Bible says that I felt like it was important for us to talk about what the Bible says the church is supposed to do and who the church is supposed to be. And so, if particularly when everyone, again, just everywhere, is saying the church is failing to do this or the church should be doing that, 
Well, let's talk about what the Bible says and what history of the church has showed us what it looks like to be a faithful church. Because when, when you and I are looking for a church, so we're going to have people who go to college here one day, and we always try to take a time to help them know what they should be looking for when they go find a church. We have people who are going to be relocating. Bethany's going to be relocating here. This is her last Sunday. Uh, sad day for us, but a happy day for her as she goes into a new transition, into a new role. Uh, segue, if you play percussion, we'd really love for you to go talk to Kirk or someone on the team um, because she's been our faithful percussionist. Thanks, Josh. Um, but yeah, so she's going to be looking for a church. And so we were texting this week about just churches in the Columbus, Ohio area that she can begin to, you know, begin to kind of plug into. And so it's important that, that she goes out of here with a sense of, I know what, I'm, what, what the Bible says I need to look for in a local church. Because here's what, the, what, we, what we're told on a weekly basis what you should look for in a church. You should look for a church that is particularly clued in on the cultural trends and pragmatics of our day. That's what you're told. That's what we hear all the time. I get articles upon articles upon articles about how I need to lead our church to be more tuned in to cultural trends. We need a church that says that needs to be family friendly, that has all the programs for your kids, so this rich connectivity in the church. Again, not a bad thing, but I get those kind of articles too. No, 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 no. You need to be a militant church that just stands against the powers of evil in our day. Right? Now, we examine all these things and we go, well, there's some truth to some of these things, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with a church that, you know, is tuned in to kind of what's going on in the world a little bit, right? So we know how we might preach the gospel more clearly to that culture. There's nothing wrong with a church being a family-friendly church. This is a family here, and if you've been a part of Grace Church for a while, you know we're a family here and we love it. And we also are very family-friendly in terms of kids and, and whatnot. We're also a church that believes that Maybe not using the word militant. I don't really like that word militant. But, but, you know, in a sense that we always are ready to stand for truth and speak truth without apology. These are all good things. But is that the mark of a church? Are these marks of a true church? And my answer to you, if you've been around here long enough, you probably uh, would already know what my answer is. No, they're not marks of a true church. They can be personality of a church, perhaps. But they're not marks of a true church. At Grace Church, we believe that we can stand with and look at history and say, hey, there's this wonderful tradition that has been passed down through us, particularly through the Reformers, and we can say, this is how we determine what a true church is. And so, you know what, maybe you're not tuned into church history, but let me just give you a quick little example. The Reformers, when they were trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church as we know it, their concerns were threefold, that the church would be reformed in its communion of truth that the church would be reformed in this communion of unity what does it really mean to be unified in christ and then third the communion of holiness how does that mean for us to pursue holiness or discipline or discipleship you've probably heard this if you are tuned into church history like this a mark of a true church is preach the gospel rightly through the word to properly administer the ordinances for the unifying sake of the church and two, and three, to, to, to seek discipline in the church so that we might pursue holiness. Those are typically, if you were to look at all of the various reformers, whether they were in Germany like Luther, or in France with, with Calvin, or in Switzerland with, with Zwingli, all these guys basically summed up that this is what they were trying to recover in the Roman Catholic Church, that, was, that, that they wanted to make sure that the church remained pure. 
The Belgic Confession, which is one of the most early doctrinal distillations that we have after during the Reformation, says it this way. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in pure preaching of the gospel, one. It makes use of pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them, number two. And number three, it practices church discipline for correcting and pursuing Christ in holiness. In short, it governs itself to, according to the pure word of God, Amen. rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing a true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. So when you leave here this morning, I want you to be assured that these are the kind of things that we pursue here at Grace. But perhaps if the Lord were to realign you where you're supposed to go, or maybe you go take a job in another city somewhere, or maybe you're going off to college, we want to help you go, how do I find a true church in the new area that I live in? Or maybe God just sends you to the other side of Nashville. And it's just like, man, it's just better for me to find a local church on that side of Nashville. We want to help you know what you're looking for. So here's my sermon summary this morning. And then we're going to look at these three marks a little bit closer. That the marks of the true church, the ones we just unpacked, demonstrate the rich communion that the church is called to in Christ. And without these marks, the church cannot rightly be called a church. That sounds pretty... Uh, dogmatic, doesn't it? But I think it's true. Without these marks, a church cannot rightly be called a church. So let's look at these three marks for a few minutes. Again, we're going to use verse 18 of, chapter, of Matthew 16 to kind of be our guide. Let's read it again. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, what rock? Well, what did Peter confess? Blessed are you, son of Jonah. You are, the, he said, I'm sorry, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. On this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Amen. You can really see the marks almost right there, right? So we're just going to break that verse down piece by piece. The first mark we've said was what? The word rightly preached. In other words, we want to be a truth-bearing communion. One of the things the reformers sought to recover in the church in their days, in, this, in the, in the 15, uh, 15th century, in the 14th century, in the, in, the, in the 17th century and whatnot, they want to rightly preach the word. Again, what does Jesus say to Peter? On this rock. Jesus was preeminently concerned with the truth. And what was the truth as Jesus heard it from, from Peter? That you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. All the truth of Scripture finds its, finds its end in that. That everything has been pointing to Jesus since Genesis. Since before Genesis, for that matter, if we read Ephesians 1 correctly. But everything has been pointing towards Jesus. No, Peter is not the rock, like our Catholic friends might say. But no, it's Peter's discourse. It's Peter's profession who is Jesus? That is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. Christ builds his church on proper confession of who Jesus is. Without that, the church ceases to be the church. Proper truth. And I want to make sure we say it this way. It's not that the word is preached in a church, but it is that the, the word is preached rightly. Now, the reason why I say that is because Lots of people I know 
say that they are word-driven churches. And I'm not here to judge every church that goes out there. And we've seen this throughout church history. But it's not that the word is preached. It's not just that someone gets up here and reads you some verses and then gives you their thoughts and ideas about this book. But that the word is preached rightly. And for a church to preach the word rightly, it is to be always bringing everyone back to the foot of the cross. Always back to the resurrection. Always back to the kingship of Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father and one day will return. Always returning back to that. If we don't preach with Jesus in view and all these things, we really don't have a, a real understanding, even from the earliest parts of the Bible, of what the Bible is actually all about. Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, okay? And he says there in 1 Timothy 3, um, what the role of truth is in the church. Let's just read it. It says, I have written to you, um, yeah, I have, verse, verse 15, I have written to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's house, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So what is Paul saying there to, to Peter? I mean, so to Timothy. He's saying, if you want to know how your life is to be lived, you must first turn to the truth of the church before you can figure out how you're to live as the church. He's saying, you conduct yourselves this way because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And he goes on a little further and defines exactly what the pillar and foundation of the truth is. Verse 16, most certainly the mystery of godliness, godliness is great. That is, he was manifested in the flesh. Who's that? Jesus vindicated in his spirit. Who's that? Jesus. Seen by angels. Who's that? Jesus. Preached among the nations. Who's that? Jesus. And believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Who's that? Jesus. The word is not rightly preached if it does not bring us back to Christ and the ultimate covenant fulfillment of God's redemptive promises to his people. And so when we get up here and we have preachers who wax eloquently about how you're supposed to be a better this and a better that and blah, 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 that's not rightly preaching the word. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have practical things for us to live out. Of course it does. It has very clear commands for God's people. But it's not first and foremost an instruction guide on how you get your best life or how you to live as the better husband, the better mother, or the better child, or whatever it may be. It is first and foremost to be a distillation, a pillar and foundation of the truth of Jesus. The truth is nothing less, nothing less than the life, death, resurrection, and glory of the Son of God. If we don't have that in the preaching, in the singing in the praying, in the teaching and classes, then we fail to be a true church. We do. Paul goes further in his second letter to Timothy and he reminds Timothy, all right, Timothy, you're there and you're building the church in Ephesus. You're helping grow and plant this church there and here's how you're going to plant this church. Here's how you're going to grow this church. First Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, again, says this. But as for you, Timothy, and all those who, you are, who are with you, continuing what you have learned, have firming believed, knowing that from, I'm sorry, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, i.e. scripture, 
which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. This passage reminds us that if we are going to be faithful to who God has called us to be, we must be ever reminded that the church is not something that we conjured up. It's by God's design, revealed in Scripture, to be formed by Scripture. It was passed on by God who marvelously and graciously reveals himself and his, and his ways to us. Now, the question then is, when you put all this together, what does that mean then? What does it mean for us to be a people who rightly handle the Word? Well, let's sum it up. Number one, we need to be a people where the preaching must be centered on Christ. I think I've made that point pretty clear. I don't think I need to exposit that anymore. But it also means that the Bible, again, as I said, is, is, remains central to what we do here. That it informs the worship service. We'll talk more about Christian worship in a few weeks as far as the Christian life is about. The Reformation emphasis on sola scriptura was important because it was the only means by which you could reform the church. What else could help us be what we're supposed to be than what God himself has revealed to us in scripture? Sola scriptura, scripture alone, is, is that, that, that aim, it is that conviction that scriptures are solely sufficient for the life of the church. Amen. Solely sufficient. It means we are committed here at Grace Church to what we call expository preaching. Now listen, when we talk about expository preaching, I want to make sure I'm clear about this. We're not talking about just line by line, book by book preaching, which of course is our primary mode of preaching here. But it is that when we open the Bible, I'm not just plucking verses to make my argument, but then I'm actually showing you and the teachers are showing you and you're leading yourself to study scriptures in the same way of what... The Bible, exogesis, expository, means we take out of the Bible what the Bible gives us. Amen. I'm not free, and you're not free, to read into the Bible anything you want to read into the Bible. Expository preaching means that however we handle the Bible, whether we do thematic preaching, doctrinal preaching, or line-by-line, book-by-book preaching, we do it in an exo kind of fashion, not an iso, all right? exegesis is taking out of scripture. We receive what the God Bible gives us and we're happy about it. Iso means the exact opposite. To place into, to read into, to make it say what I want it to say, which of course is what a lot of the world wants us to do. So do you see how this is relevant to this conversation about the mission of the church, right? The Bible, people take the Bible all the time and then they point us with all these little verses and they say you're not doing this you're not being this the church needs to be this and the church needs to have a passion for these things and not these things or the other group will say no you need a passion for these things and not these things and it's like wait a minute your heads are spinning no we don't use the bible that way we use the bible in an exegesis kind of way bring out the meaning of the scripture and say what it says is final and, if it, and, and, and rest in what has been given to us. So the first mark of a church is a church that rightly preaches the word of God, namely to see Christ. 
second mark of the church that the reformers and we at Grace Church emphasize immensely here is the ordinances rightly administered. So we said earlier that to rightly preach the word is to be a people about the truth. Well, to rightly administer the ordinances is a people about unity. There's a lot of talk about unity in our day, right? Everyone says we need to be a unified church. Well, Jesus ensured that you'll be a unified church. And he gave us marks of that unity. And the marks of that unity are what? Our ordinances. Our sacraments, if you want to use that word. And there's two of them that Jesus commanded us to, to, to take advantage of, to take use of. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, as we do every week here. Jesus was clear to Peter in verse 18... I will build my church. Peter doesn't build the church. Tom Agnew does not build the church. John Piper does not build the church. John MacArthur does not build the church. Jesus builds his church. Now the reason why I want to take notice of that as the second part of this, this idea here it's because this is what God has been doing since the beginning. We talked about it a little bit last week. That Jesus himself is the bedrock and it is him who builds his people. I'm not responsible for building the kingdom, and neither are you. And I'm not responsible for building this church, and neither are you. My job is to be faithful for what has been revealed and let God build his church through it. Amen. That's what we do here. If people want to know the, like, I've asked people, people have asked, you know, go church planner things all the time. What, what, what do you think has caused the, the, why your church is continuing to grow? Preach the word. Preach Jesus. And Jesus builds his church. So we started with that fellowship of 30 or 35 people almost six years ago. And look where we are today. Not my ingenuity, I can tell you that. Um, if it was up to me and what was going on in this building right now, I mean, we would be way off the mark. But God, in his mercy, brings people and, and people with giftings and strengths to build his church. I mean, to help participate in his church. But it's Jesus who builds his church. And the reason why I want to take notice of that is because what we're finding here in Jesus talking to Peter is covenantal language. God has always related to his people by covenant. He related to Adam by covenant and said, Adam, if you do this, you'll love. If you, do, if you don't do this, you'll die. And of course, Adam chose the wrong way and all of humanity died with him but then god in his mercy says okay i'm going to create a, i'm going to do i'm going to covenant with you in a better way and this time the covenant is me i'm going to do this for you i'm going to be assured that you're going to be my people and i want to carry you all the way home and so god always went to these people who were in covenant with him and says you will be my people i will make you my people he, he not only makes the covenant, but he keeps the covenant for God's people. And so this is so important for us, right? Because at the end of the day, what we're finding here in, the, in, in, in this discourse between Peter and, and, and Jesus is Jesus saying, it's finally coming to completion. Everything that my Father has been revealing since the beginning, since the beginning of Genesis all the way now, is coming to completion in me. And he says... I'm going to finally build my church. And in the Bible, when God made a covenant with his people, he always marked that covenant. 
with signs and seals. So in the covenant with Adam, what was the sign and seal of creation? The tree of life, right? In the covenant with Noah, it was the sign and seal was what? The rainbow. And the sign and seal in Abraham was what? Circumcision. So we, you see where we're going, right? What do you think the sign and seal is for the church today? Baptism and the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted. In Matthew 26, Jesus has this wonderful supper. And it's not just a kumbaya moment with him and his believers and his followers. He's instituting. He even commands them to take of this regularly, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians. It was to seal his disciples, his church, that he would have communion with them again. That the supper, as you and I have participated in each and every week, has, it was commanded by Jesus to be observed often so that it stands as a testimony to the world of what? Of what Jesus came to do. Amen. And that though Jesus would be crucified that night, and that Jesus would be raised from the dead and go back to be at the right hand of his Father, imminently, Jesus still abides with his church. So when we take of this meal in a few minutes, remember something. You take it because Jesus has promised that he abides with you. That's the seal of the church. The sign of the church was what he commanded at the end, Matthew 28. We all know it. We say it a lot around here. Baptism was commanded in those instructions, right? Go, therefore, make disciples, what? baptizing them in the name of the, marking them off as mine. They're my people. So what you see here is the sign, baptism, and the seal, Lord's Supper, as covenantal marks of God saying, I'm fulfilling my plan for you in Jesus. Do you see why the reformers made a big deal about that? Do you see where we tend to not like emphasize that in the modern church. The modern church is all about make sure we entertain, do whatever we can to get more people in the door. Ours is, no, we preach the gospel, we preach Jesus, and we participate in those ordinances. Why? Because those ordinances, Jesus intends to, to mark off his people. So when you and I come in here, if you're not a member of Grace Church, you are welcome to the table. You know Why? Because it's not my table. It's not Grace Church's table. It's the Lord's table. When we have that glorious opportunity when other believers come and fellowship with us on Sunday mornings, in a few weeks we're going to have the Congolese folks come in here, or at least a few of them come and worship with us on Sunday. And we share this common cup. We're showing our profound unity among believers who may differ on things such as, what? Cultural and ethnic boundaries? That may differ on things like social and political interests? That may differ on things such as philosophical and pragmatic differences in the world? Because we know that what binds us isn't our style of worship. What binds us isn't whether or not you're sitting in fold-up chairs or cushiony chairs in about a month and a half. What binds us is in the fact that whether we have a building or we're meeting in an elementary school, as we were a couple years ago. 
What binds us is the fact that Christ has fulfilled his covenant by coming, dying on a cross for us, raising, rising to the, from the dead, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he then says, you're mine, by faith, you're mine. These marks are important. That's why we take the Lord's Supper each week. And as often as the Lord leads people to come believe, we baptize. So we don't practice closed communion here because it's not mine to close. That doesn't mean that we practice open communion so that everyone just kind of comes freely and takes of it in an unworthy manner. That would be the opposite, right? We don't, we don't do that. If you're not a believer, you, you shouldn't come to this table because this table offers you no benefit. You're just drinking juice. So we don't practice open communion. We don't practice closed communion. We might say we use the word close communion, right? means we're mindful of those who are real believers who make a proper confession, and they're welcome. But if there is sin, or perhaps they don't believe, they should not participate in those things as well. And so at the end of the day, we believe the first mark is to preach the word rightly. The second mark is to observe the ordinances well and correctly and conscientiously. And three, we believe that the discipline of the church is rightly pursued. When we talk about discipline, when we hear people talk about church discipline, it sounds like a bunch of people who just are angry and mad and they want to hurt people's feelings and they want to, they're always, it always seems like when people talk about church discipline, it's these people who want to just kick people out of the church as fast as they can. That's not what we mean by church discipline. That's not what the reformers meant by church discipline. Look what Jesus said there in verse 18 again. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not overpower it. Well, what are the gates of hell? Sin and destruction. Sin and destruction will not overcome the church. Sin and destruction will not define the church. So in other words, sin that has destroyed everything we know, and there's not one square inch in all creation that has not been touched or in, impacted by sin and death, Jesus promises that his church will be a people set apart from sin, both now and forever, and God's people are called to be a holy people, in a world ravaged by sins and Satan's power. 1 Peter 1, 13, uh, 1, 16 uh, echoes Exodus. Be holy for I'm holy. Amen. That God's people are to be sanctified. Now, we, that can be a messy journey, you cannot, amen? It's super messy. It's one thing I love about it, and we say it here fairly frequently. This is a group of messy people who are trusting in a big Jesus who sanctifies us through his spirit. And where we fall short of the mark every day, that does not, it does not in any way dissuade us from pursuing holiness. Because Jesus made a promise, sin will not ravage me. Sin will not get the final word about me. He will not get the final word about God's people because the church is a sanctified not just a saved people Amen. so many people want to talk about salvation as if it's kind of this okay get a get out of hell free card that's not redemption redemption is yes you're saved fully but you're going to be sanctified too it may be a long painful process but you're going to be sanctified too amen until Jesus returns, though, this sin will continue to wreak havoc on God's people from time to time. But we, as God's people, through the work of the Spirit in our lives, fight sin. 
We turn from sin. We repent of sin as people, as a people who have been ransomed by Jesus. I love Jeffrey Johnson's little book on the church. We had it on the shelves out here before we removed him. We'll put him back up once everything's finished again. But he has a quote that really helps me. The great business of the church is to grow in unity and in holiness. It is sin that destroys unity, and thus God is seeking to bring his church into greater unity by delivering them from the bondage of sin and by sanctifying them in the truth. You see all three marks there? Truth leads to unity, which leads to holiness. You can't really take any one of those three things out and the church be the church. We believe that the church is a church that rightly preaches the word, preaches the gospel, a church that rightly administers the sacraments, and a church that pursues holiness through discipline in the church. Now, when we talk about discipline, we're talking about two different sides of the same coin. We're talking about formative discipline, and we're talking about corrective discipline. Formative discipline is those things that we do. Is they're, they're the means of grace that God has given his church that we are to gladly participate in each and every week. Joe Thorne calls these positive disciplines. The positive disciplines of the church are the preaching and the worship of the church. Don't forsake these things, brothers and sisters. Positive disciplines are prayer. Positive disciplines are mentoring and friendship within the body of Christ. Positive disciplines are service and sharing of, of life and the things God gives us together. Positive disciplines are those normative practices of everyday church life. That's the reason why on the front of your bulletin we call this series Ordinary. I'm not trying to improve upon things that have been wonderful, wonderful gifts to the church throughout the centuries. Right? Who am I to try to improve on something that has carried the church along so wonderfully in these centuries? But we're, look at Matthew 28. When Jesus says, this is what you do, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always. He's saying these are the positive disciplines that the church is to participate in. Acts 2, what was the very first thing this church did once they were called out of sin and into this glorious light? They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of prayer, and I'm breaking the bread and prayer and sharing in all things. These are the positive, the formative disciplines of the church. When these things fail, we usually have to move into a corrective discipline. You might call these reformative disciplines. This is where we get into the idea of church discipline. It has a lot of negative connotations in the world today. Very few churches practice it. By God's grace, we have had practice it very minimally here at Grace so far. Um, I think it's because God has in his spirit preserved and protected our church. There have been times when we've had to do some smaller things here and there, but not a ton. But, there, but it's the aim, though, of church discipline, is, like I said earlier, is not to disfellowship people. I think some people think it's what it is. Well, that dirty, rotten sinner needs to get out of here. That's not it. No, the aim is to be restorative. Plead with your brother and sister in Christ. This is sin, and it will do nothing but destroy you. Come back to the light. Repent. Return to Jesus. Be loved by the church. These is, this is what it means to be corrective discipline. It addresses those ongoing struggles of serious sin in our lives that sometimes come about in the body of Christ. 
like addiction or addictive behavior, perhaps drunkenness or pornography or any other thing, or abuse of various kinds. There's, it seems like that's, there's a new abuse that gets revealed almost on a weekly basis, doesn't it? Neglect or abandonment, gossip or divisive behavior or factions that seek to divide the body. These are the kind of things that, that we, want to, uh, we want to warn ourselves against and, and, and seek to not let them take a toehold in the local church. So we, we pursue these disciplines. Look at what it says in Matthew 18. You know it well, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you and go tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, or as, in other words, an unbeliever. And truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Did you notice that's the same exact statement that Jesus uses over in Matthew 16? So our binding together and loosing together has to do with how we do church together. Amen. We need to do it well. We need to take it seriously. It calls us to go to one another when we sin and we see sin creeping into our lives. It calls us to an expanded care for one another and, and part and parcel of, of being part of the body. It, it calls us to express concern should the normative church functions fail to be what they need to be to call people out of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Let me just turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. I'm just going to read this portion. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay, well, you got our attention now, right? And you, are an, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation, the one who has did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such, thing, such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand this one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Indeed, you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, that, um, not the old leaven or with the leaven of malice or evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in verses 9 through 13, he goes into the process of church discipline. The point is, a church that either turns a blind eye to sin in its, in, the, in its fellowship, or even more, celebrates it. And yes, there are so-called churches that celebrate sin these days. It, it has been, by the way, it's nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning. These are the kind of things that we must guard the flock up for. So let's finish it up. Marks of the true church are gospel preached through the word in other words a truth bearing communion unity displayed through the sacraments a unified communion and holiness pursued through discipline a, a, a holiness pursuing sanctifying community 
You can choose a church for a lot of other reasons, friends. And you're free to do so. But I don't want to stand before my God in heaven as to why I didn't find the right church for me because, well, I'd never found the right style of music. How sad is that? Or the right size of church. Or the right church that had the right people for me. Or had the right expansive programs. Or was just particularly savvy in those cultural trends. Friends, as we come to the Lord's table here in just a moment, my prayer is that this church, grace, and all churches will extend the grace of God through these normal marks so that we might be a holy people, a unified people, and a truth-bearing people until Jesus returns. Father, help us now as we leave here this morning. We share this meal here in a minute. Thank you for the tireless efforts of all the people in this church who've put in time and teaching and discipleship and building remodel and all kinds of things. Father, help us now as we come knowing that when we take of this table, we take it with a sincere and conscientious heart. But we do so knowing that you have sealed us as your own. It's in Christ's name. Amen.